0: This is an ABC podcast. I love unfettered free speech. I love electric vehicles. I love my rocket ship. And I love all my stuff.
1: Okay, but actually, how do you even count cryptocurrency? It doesn't have a physical form.
0: No, no, no. These are just pedantic details, Beverly. I'm counting my acquisitions, specifically the bird site.
1: He's acquiring Twitter, people.
0: Free speech is the bedrock of a functioning democracy. Twitter is the digital town square. And I, as an African-American self-made entrepreneur... Okay, no, please don't. Please don't with the African-American. Please don't. Stop everything. Basics, Tesla, Twitter. Culture moves fast and so does Elon Musk as he frantically collects all the scattered parts of his soul to create a Voltron of capitalism. So it's time to stop everything. Hello, Beverly Wang.
1: Hello, Benjamin Law. I see this week we're dealing with a collect the stones kind of superhero movie. Welcome to Stop Everything, your digital town square where we, too democratically elected co-hosts and our invited guests speak freely oh hang on Mm, that's not how it works does it oh okay well you know what we've never claimed to be a town square and I guess I'm poking fun at us and the concept of a town square because we need to talk about Twitter the so-called digital town square that looks to be changing hands from Wall Street shareholders the little guys to one single owner the world's richest man billionaire car maker space entrepreneur tunnel builder elon musk
0: so now it's a good time to take a step back look big picture and ask ourselves what is twitter even worth why is this even happening and what does it even mean i mean beverly personally you and i we both love twitter we use it a lot as time goes on i do wonder if it's becoming the hem radio, social media equivalent. You know what I mean? Like, is it, is it a little bit niche and why would someone want to buy it now?
1: First of all, I want to back up and say that love is a strong word, Benjamin. I don't know <laughs> that I can wholeheartedly say that I love Twitter, but we have a
0: complicated uh, relationship. as a side
1: note, I also disagree with this very kind of top line dismissal of Twitter mm-hmm. as a horrible and toxic place. I think it lies somewhere in between and it depends on what community you belong to or communities and who you follow, et cetera, et cetera, how you curate your feed. But that's by the by for now. So Elon Musk is reportedly going to be able to purchase all of Twitter for 44 billion US dollars pending approval from US regulators. So it's not quite a done deal.
0: It's a lot of money for a website that has, well as it reports, 1.3 billion accounts, which sounds like a lot, but only 192 million of them are actually active daily users. And when you buy Twitter, or when specifically Elon Musk buys Twitter for 44 billion US dollars, that's actually 38% more than what Wall Street thought Twitter was worth the day that Musk actually announced his plan to are buy Are you saying
1: it. that values are inflated in corporate America <laughs> and on Wall Street, Benjamin, that there's a lot Who of speculation?
0: Knew. My is on the floor. Look, if it is approved, though, there will be big paydays. It's reported Twitter founder Jack Dorsey will make $978 million US dollars out of this, and the current Twitter CEO, Parag Agrawal, will make $39 million out of it. But in all of this, it's Elon Musk collecting this acquisition into his pockets.
1: I'm interested in both our personal reactions as Twitter users and whether that changes how we feel and how we approach this platform because there is a lot of talk of people leaving after this so-called muskening. That's a word I'm taking from Jeff Yang, who was one of our guests recently to talk about Rise. Then there's what have Jack Dorsey and Elon Musk said? And also what does this mean for the platform itself? So my initial
0: instinct and hunch was like, If this is his motivation to buy Twitter, which is to expand the free speech remit of the site, then I instinctively feel a little bit anxious because Twitter in its early iterations was basically that the moderation was very lax, the number of tools that you could use in order to protect your account, in order to limit the number and type of people actually replying to it, hide, block, mute. Those functions were very nascent or didn't exist at all. And as time has gone on, I wonder if those are the kind of mechanisms and kind of scaffolding to keep Twitter a relatively more safe space that Elon Musk wants to do away with. Because when he calls himself a free speech absolutist, what can't be said on Twitter now in its current form that he wants to bring back exactly? And, of course, there are broader questions about, well, if he disagrees with, for instance, Donald Trump being kicked off the platform, does this allow an opening for someone like Donald Trump to go back on? So that's where I start worrying not just about myself but about Twitter's role within democracy. I think Elon Musk's argument would be by expanding free speech, that is such an important democratic function and tool of Twitter, right? Mm. That's where Twitter does become the town square. But if you allow it so much that hate speech and abuse and vitriol overwhelm the site – to the point where conspiracy theories can be freely available to anyone, Uh, false information about COVID, for instance, does that not erode democracy itself?
1: Let's take a closer look at what both Jack Dorsey and Elon Musk have said since this deal was announced. Let's also start by saying that these are two very distinct characters. You've got Jack Dorsey, who's kind of presents himself as almost like this emo philosopher, tech aesthetic like, he's up mm-hmm. high on the, on the mountaintop. But let's remember, he's also a billionaire who owns Afterpay and Square, okay? He's not such an ascetic fellow. He just presents that way, and that's his persona. And then you've got Elon Musk. He's divisive. He has all these people on Twitter who praise him and, like, big him up because they think he is just this self-made man, and they adore his wealth and his power and his flair. And then there are a lot of people with those very characteristics, it totally turns them off because of this almost whimsical nature of his capitalism, where he can just take and grab and buy whatever he likes by dint of his vast wealth. What's interesting to me, actually, is that within the last two weeks or so, Twitter was trying to hold off a hostile takeover by Elon Musk by making him offers like, come join our board, which he rejected, and taking on this so-called poison pill strategy. And then this week, as the deal is announced, Jack Dorsey embraces this deal, and he says things like, taking the company back from Wall Street is the correct first step. Elon is the singular solution I trust, Elon's goal of creating a platform that is maximally trusted and broadly inclusive is the right one. And I read that and I, my big grain of salt there is $978 million <laughs> from this sale.
0: No wonder he's happy. No wonder he's relaxed.
1: Right. And then on the other side, you've got Elon Musk already, I guess I would say as a piece of unsolicited advice, if you are going to become the owner of this platform where a lot of people talk and you love to talk, one of the difficult things you may have to do to manage this company is actually stop talking so much in public because some of the things he's saying are confusing and contradictory from my read, right? He says that he wants free speech for all. By the same token, he also wants political neutrality. I am having a hard time squaring absolute free speech where people can say whatever they want and political neutrality. These things don't Mm. really go together in my mind. What I find interesting about
0: Twitter's current state is what's allowed and what's not allowed. So, for instance, death threats are technically not allowed. Uh, Twitter's moderators will kind of like figure out amongst themselves whether something constitutes hate speech or not. You can't post anything illegal, but you can have hardcore pornography still on Twitter. So it is this place where some things are allowed, some things aren't, but they have to be within, of course, the realm of the law. There was an interesting piece by Evelyn Dowick in The Atlantic, and she wrote that, well, there are probably some realities that Elon Musk hasn't really considered yet that are probably going to disappoint him. And it occurs to me, Beverly, that you know, all of us on Twitter want certain things. Like for instance, I want an edit button. I don't have enough money to buy Twitter to make an edit button actually happen. But Elon Musk has enough money and is going to implement things that he wants. But what does he want? And is he going to get it? So he's said that, for instance, he doesn't currently like the company's content moderation. But what is going to happen if he starts pulling those levers, right? So if he wants to have less content moderation then my mind immediately goes to a platform like Parler. So, if you remember during the days, the final days of the Trump presidency, where he was kicked off Twitter and he urged all of his followers to go onto Parler, which was promoted as basically um, a free speech alternative to Twitter, where you can say whatever you want. And, of course, it attracted the far right. The far right really went over to there to say, we're going to be able to say whatever we want without moderation. But Parler becomes flooded with spam, abuse, hate speech, and Google and Apple take it away from their app store because it says it violates our policies in terms of apps that are even allowed. So at what stage does Twitter become something that is not actually feasible within the world, not only of commerce, but of you know nation state law?
1: Yeah, I hear all of that, and I think those are all really strong concerns. The user experience on Twitter, if there's too much trash happening, people will just turn off. I'm still preoccupied, though, by the words of Jack Dorsey and Elon Musk themselves. And I'm also preoccupied Mm -hmm. by this concept of Twitter being called a digital town square. I really am wrestling with this idea of a digital town square. I think we should think about it a bit more closely because it's held up as this ideal Right, That we have this public space where people can have their say, respectful conversation. It's a marketplace of ideas. Exactly. Then. You took the words right out of my mouth. But I want to ask, does the idea of a town square genuinely exist in our real lives, either in the form of a real space, or online. I question whether that concept, which is a lovely concept, how much of that is steeped in nostalgia and idealism, and how much of that actually exists. I was thinking, what is kind of a, a real life equivalent of a digital town square, right? A town council meeting, a city council meeting, even our federal parliament. Maybe in the past that was a forum for a respectful and high minded debate. I would say, in recent years, that has probably changed quite a lot. And the kind of dialogue that we see isn't always inspiring. I really wonder whether we are trying to imagine a place that in most respects doesn't even really exist. And then you take this idea of this mythical town square and you place it under corporate ownership. Like Jack Dorsey says that Elon is the singular solution to solving the problems of Twitter. How can a platform that will be solely owned by a billionaire with a myriad of business and personal interests truly be serving the idea of a free and fair town square? And then if you drill a little deeper, in this so-called town square that we all seem to aspire to, does everybody have the same position in the town square? Is everybody's voice heard? Is everybody represented, even in the town square of, say, the federal parliament? Are all voices represented? We don't mm-hmm. have enough women there. We don't have enough people of color there. When we're talking about Twitter and social media and this idea, this vaunted town square, I don't know how useful that idea is because I am not sure it's a real place. And so when we think, uh, try to apply that to Twitter, is that useful? Is that the point? Like, I think actually there's like many, many different communities. It's like little galaxies inside Twitter, right? It's not just all painted with one broad brush okay and I'm I know I'm going on here but then I wonder you know this idea I think that's difficult for people and I'm struggling with this too Is like you think in Twitter you have built your own following your own community your own place but all of that is a false sense of security because the ownership the structure all of that can be can change hands and what does that mean then to the place that you have built if it's not on actually a stable trustworthy foundation
0: look, all all of what you're saying also reminds me of something that the British writer Zadie Smith said about social media, which is that there is no such thing as a neutral platform. You know every platform is governed by ethos and ideas and agendas, and that is baked into algorithms and setup and the very channels through which the social media network actually works. And when you talk about a public town square, maybe the ironic thing here is that there are parallels between the illusion, town squares even existing in real life versus the illusion of it happening on Twitter. Because what we see here, of course, is, well, can people actually participate in a town square that they're not part of? And because of this announcement, a lot of people have announced that they're leaving Twitter. They don't want to be a part of a so-called town square if Elon Musk is in charge of it. What is the strange caveat in all of this is that Tesla's stocks have gone down. So, while people have seen... Elon Musk paying more attention to social media, they're now realising maybe he won't be paying attention to his main business. And that might bring up a twist, Beverly, which is that maybe this sale won't go through. Reuters business journalists are speculating, hey, you know what? Elon Musk, four years ago, vowed to set up a peanut brittle company to (laughs) to take on a confectionery giant. He changed his mind at the last minute. And there's still every possibility Elon Musk could change his mind now. Tesla stock is falling. He won't be enjoying that phenomenon that comes with him acquiring Twitter. And the other geopolitical dimension in all of this is that Tesla produces half of its vehicles in China. China is not a huge fan of Twitter. And if China wanted to hold Elon Musk to ransom, if Twitter didn't play ball in the way that China wanted it to in, say, Hong Kong... What happens there? So maybe, is our last
1: conversation all a moot point? (laughs) All these big issues, you know what, Ben? They make me a little bit exhausted. I think we need to focus in on the little things that give us joy. Okay, resident short king of Stop Everything Benjamin Law, I think I know the answer, but I'm going to ask you anyway. Are you into mini things?
0: Wait, who are you calling mini I know I'm 65 kilograms, I've got a 20-inch waist, but I'm big in other ways, Beverly.
1: Well, perhaps that is foreshadowing the next conversation that we are going to have. But for now, let me tell you, I am so obsessed with Instagrams that post videos of food made in functioning tiny kitchens using real ingredients. There's one called Tiny Kitchen TM and another one called Mini Kitchen India. And all you see are these life-sized human adult hands wielding tiny kitchen utensils to prepare real edible meals. I cannot stress how simultaneously impressed and incredulous I am by all of this.
0: There is something about miniatures that fills us all with wonder and delight. And there is a new ABC TV series called Tiny Oz that zooms in on Australian history via the art of making miniatures.
2: Australia has a reputation for big big skies, big fruit, big sunglasses. But if you go looking in the right places, you'll find Tiny Australia. What are you doing?
1: I'm making a miniature scene in a hole in the wall.
2: Right. Across the land, the art of making miniatures has taken off.
0: Wow. The skill level that's needed to do something
1: of this nature is huge.
2: I'm just struggling to understand how you do that with normal sized hands.
1: That's a fair question. That's a fair question. If you follow any miniature accounts on Instagram, that will also be a question that you wonder about. This show, Tiny Oz, is hosted by social media comedian Jimmy Rees and miniature artist Joanne bougianis Selick. Jimmy Rees has dropped past for a chat. Jimmy, welcome to Stop Everything. Ah,
2: Thank you for stopping all of the things and having me. Is that how it works? <laughs>
1: yeah, and it's nice to see you in full size. You haven't shrunk down for this particular team. Not yet. You're not in mini form. <laughs> Let's talk about Tiny Oz because first up, the concept on paper looks niche or small. We're going to lean into the tiny puns today. Why have you chosen to look at Australian history via miniatures?
2: Well, there's a couple of elements here. It's a discovery of these moments in Australian history which weren't Instagrammed or Facebooked or whatever. They weren't captured that was so long ago. And also the art form of miniature is fascinating. When you see like something in tiny miniature, like a lot of people's reaction is like, How'd they do that? Or like, what? How did they get it so small? So it's sort of leaning into that idea of, what is this world about and i think it's best explained but if i just explain the first episode which is centered around a zoo in sydney the zoo in sydney in 1916 was moved from where it was which was in the middle of the city to its new home which is where it exists now at taronga park over the harbor but at that time it wasn't a bridge so how did they get the animals over they put them on barges and sent them across to their new home But it was one day where they moved all of the animals. So they marched them all down from the zoo in the city onto the barges. So there's this incredible scene of elephants and giraffes and lions in cages on horse and cart (laughs) going down Macquarie Street to the awe of all these people who've got some sort of rhino walking past them or whatever. So we've recreated that in miniature. And then all this sort of detailed work has gone into recreating Macquarie Street in 1916 with all these animals Walking past Sydney ciders. <laughs> now, there's a dedicated community of Australians
0: who are devoted to making miniatures, small things. But how big is that community? Do you see what I did there, small Yeah, I see what
2: you did there. Well, (laughs) I'm going to one-up you. It's humongous. You know, I think they brought me into this project to sort of go in with open eyes and bring a bit of fun and humour to it. And I didn't know much about it as well. And we meet this guy, for instance, who makes tiny pottery. The pots are the size of your thumb, not even, they're tiny. He's got a tiny miniature pottery wheel because you can't use a normal size one. You have to use a tiny one. This is about the size of your hand. And he said, you know, I could do this full time. It just sort of opened our eyes to like, oh, wow, it is a giant community. (laughs) So in
0: the trailer for this show, we heard before, how are people doing this with normal-sized hands? You talk about a miniature pottery wheel. Can we go through other technical requirements
2: it takes to make stuff like this? Patience is probably the biggest thing. They use all sorts of different techniques and I think things have evolved over time where everything used to be done by hand and these days they use a bit of laser scanning. You can have an app on your phone and scan something and put it into a computer and, and a 3D print a few items that might be a little too hard to craft by hand. But They make a tree out of, like they might find a, a twig in the garden and then... A fine palm tree is just really fine scissors and some paper. And they might texture the paper with a certain technique. And then it's just getting every single front of that fern cut in the perfect angle and make it look absolutely beautiful. And this is where the patience comes in. It's a lot of trial and error and overcut with one scissors and you've ruined the whole thing. (laughs) So start again. It only took me two
1: hours. (laughs) What you're describing there, you really see in that first episode of the move to Taronga Zoo. And I'm thinking about not just the team of the two guys making the whole model, but the two women who just experiment and the way they're trying to figure out how to paint that elephant just so. (laughs) I mean, the level of research and skill and attention to detail is really mind-blowing. What struck you most about this world of mini acts. What was the thing that you took away after spending so much time with miniature makers?
2: Yeah, I think there's an innate humor to it and fun creating these little items, you know, how small can we get it? We're working with this scale, which is really, really, really tiny. And I think people, they take pride and it's a challenge to get things so small and so detailed. There is so many failures that would happen, you know, oh, that corrugated iron roof just doesn't look like the real thing so we need to just throw it out and start again the pottery might just break because your hands are too big you know some things just don't fit into making these tiny little things so I think it's the belief that they can make these things so small and the persistence to get it done and then when it's coming together it's like oh yeah we did that and that looks as close as we can to real life but a fraction of the size
0: and here I am patting myself on the back if I even achieve close to what it resembles in the women's weekly birthday cake book these people are going far and beyond with what they're doing you mentioned before let's see how small we can get it you know that's a challenge there the show itself delves into tricking us with size and proportions it has a really distinct look a lot of it's shot as if the settings are in miniature and you are often in miniature yourself so tell us a little bit about the visual
2: ambition of the show and what it took to achieve that look (laughs) They really play with some camera tricks. You can sort of defocus a few areas of just a drone shot of Sydney Harbour, right? And you can defocus sort of like the outline of it and stylize it in a way that the whole thing looks like miniature and change the frame rate a little bit so it kind of looks like this miniature scene and this is just regular footage from a drone or whatever it might be. So there's some really fun camera tricks. And then at the end of each episode, after the model's been built, they are working to a time as well. You know, we're putting it in a library and there's a big reveal, so there is a little bit of to it uh, will they get it done in time because these things take hundreds of hours and then they shrink us down and we sort of shot it on green screen where Joanne and I are walking through the model and reflecting on how they built this and what it was like at the time and and even shooting that was bizarre you know we're in a green screen full green screen room with ramps and they're trying to mock up me walking along the dock in the model and eyelines. lines there's the old classic Hollywood thing that you're acting to a tennis ball on a stick Jurassic Park the T-Rex was a tennis ball on a stick <laughs> you know like you have to use your imagination so although i'm not claiming this was like a hollywood production like but it was sort of a little bit like we're supposed to be looking at a monkey where is it i will get a tennis ball on a stick it's fine
0: <laughs> so jimmy in addition to being miniaturized in in tiny oz you're also on tour with your solo comedy show meanwhile in australia and tickets have been selling out at it every stop congratulations and the comedy show name meanwhile in australia is a reference to comedy videos that you made and made you a social media star during lockdowns and that's because you made and shared videos like this.
2: Hello darling. Hello darling. Did you hear darling? Hear what darling? About the Pfizer. What about the Pfizer darling? You can't get it darling. Can't get it. Not after you've had your lips done darling. What? Apparently you can have a reaction darling. Well what happens darling? It makes your lips bigger darling. Makes your lips bigger darling. Yes darling. So what's your point darling? Oh. That's why Coco's lips look so good, darling. You think she got the faa... F- f- she doesn't look a day of a 44, darling. <gasps> darling! Are you okay, darling? Darling, you won't believe it. What is it, darling? A man in his 30s got the AZ. The AZ. The AZ. The AZ. The A-Z.
0: That will live rent-free in our minds for the rest of the week. You really captured the zeitgeist there. That's Meanwhile in Brighton, Part 6, an absurdist merging of many threads of the zeitgeist in that 2021 period where everything went pear-shaped Can you talk a little about how your social media videos took off during that period?
2: It's funny. I kind of wound up at the ABC in 2019. Giggle and Hoot came to a sort of a natural end after 10 years on air, and I moved back to Victoria. It was the next chapter of my career, and we had some live events, and I was sort of toying around with doing this and that, and obviously everything just got completely wiped out in 2020. So I was at home, three kids, we'd just sort of bought a new house and had no idea idea what I was going to do so I knew that I always wanted to create my own content and go down the lines of comedy I didn't know where to start and we were talking about that but being in lockdown, and it was my chance to sort of pull out my camera, I first recorded some things on my phone and just put some things out there. I couldn't do these kind of things while I was a kids presenter. That was part of my contract, so that came to an end, and so I could just be myself and do what I wanted on my social channels. So I started off with some parenting videos, really. I, we had three kids in the house. We're going bananas in lockdown in Victoria, and and there was one video I just posted. Unbeknownst to me, it kind of just took off. I had about 20,000 followers. The post reached a million people, and I think it just you know was a summation of people being at home, they've got all this time, they're on social media a little bit more, and it was something that they related to. So I really kept it just going every single day. I just made a new video. And it sort of turned into a bit of pandemic-related humour because every single day we'd wake up and at 11 o'clock or whatever time Dan Andrews decided to do his press conference the whole of Victoria was watching and it was like the number one rating TV show was Dan Andrews press conference and I thought that's kind of weird there's got to be some humor here in if we take a step back we're all sitting there looking at that purple banner wondering what our lives are going to be like tomorrow because all the things are changing so I kind of did a mock-up of that and that's where the COVID thing started and then The Brighton videos, I think, uh, someone mentioned to me that with the whole vaccine thing, the age where you could get the AZ kept rising. So if you'd had the AZ, it meant you were over 50. Then it was over 60 or whatever it was. So,
1: (laughs) And then it dropped back down to if you were 30, you could get it. I
2: know, exactly. But at that time, it was like you could get it if you're older. So we thought the people in Brighton who were trying to look young all the time, Brighton is a kind of upmarket suburb in Melbourne, darling, you know, they look after their appearance, darling, with some injectables. (laughs) (laughs) They'll have the lips and everything. They're trying to make themselves look younger, but they've got the vaccine that automatically says you old. So there was a bit of funny. So they all wanted the (laughs) Pfizer.
1: That enunciation of the Pfizer is really going to ring in my skull for the next week or months, or maybe it never left since I watched that video. What was it like, Jimmy, when your giggle and hoot audience found you online? Was there a little bit of, huh, what's happening? (laughs) How can this be Jimmy Giggle? What was that adjustment like? And how did you see that coming across?
2: A few people, which I thought was funny said oh I've watched you for years and years but I didn't realize it was you how did they not put it together but anyway it's like I look the same <laughs> just don't have my funny pajamas on so it took a few videos I guess for people to twig that it was actually me but it was bizarre you know and I think in a way a lot of people have said I watched you for years and years with the high-pitched owl voice and you know the singing and things and you know if you're a parent you know that sometimes although the kids might love the wiggles or giggle and hoot or whatever it's frustrating to hear all day long as a parent so you kind of begin to hate some of the these programs because they're on so much, so I think a lot of people have commented. I'm glad you're doing something to entertain us now because it's like you're paying us back for all the you know <laughs> all the high pitched screaming we had in our ears for our kids watching you. So <laughs> I just give him back, you know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> those videos that we see and hear are super edited, lots of voices, lots of characters. What's the process like of translating that and why people are kind of turning to those videos into a live stage show?
2: That's hard to not put the scissors in, in and edit live on stage. <laughs> because I try to keep it fast-paced and I think that's just my attention span. I keep editing and I'm like, I'm chopping off the first bit of my word, but oh well, keep it moving. That's kind of a hard process. But, you know, the stage provides you a bunch of different lighting tricks and, you know, I've got a screen in there that kind of looks like a big phone. So people are sort of familiar with the portrait kind of looking me at it and I interact with the screen. So there are some moments there. And I think also... In a kind of bizarre way, changing characters in front of people is kind of fun, you know. I attempt to do a Meanwhile in Australia live. Sometimes there's 400 edits in one of these Meanwhile in Australia videos with every single state chiming in and I try and keep them moving fast-paced or whatever. And trying to do that live is kind of funny because it just goes wrong. I'm trying to put headbands on and pick up a glass or a cup as fast as I can and I drop them. And I've got a screen that it's sort of being projected onto live, so it's fun to do. And these Guy Who Decides videos I've sort of made with a guy who's sort of drinking, making the decisions about packaging or whatever, which seems so bizarre in our normal life. And then there's the straight guy, Jason, who's trying to keep him, you know, under wraps. I switch between those two characters too. And, and on the stage we used the lighting trick and I put the glasses on and take the glasses off as a, a device to sort of switch between the characters and the voices and stuff. And I think it works, it's a, a different kind of, yeah, way to achieve the same thing.
1: It sounds like a workout, Jimmy. <laughs> a lot of all of the switcheroo. A little bit. I have a question about the guy who decides. What is in that glass that he likes to drink from so much? It's clear. It's a clear liquid. It's a clear liquid
2: spirit. Yeah, probably gin is probably his drink of choice. But, you know, he wouldn't refuse anything, I don't think, the guy decides. (laughs) 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 Uh, To make all those bizarre decisions, you've got to have... I don't know where it came from, really, but the way you open scissors in the clamshell packaging of scissors, you need scissors to open a packet of scissors. So, like, who thought of that? And same with a knife. It's in the clamshell thing. You need a knife or some scissors to open the packaging for the knife and the scissors some cans have the ring pull thing on it like most cans do these days except for beetroot beetroot you need a can opener still like can openers could be made redundant but there's some guys still out there going nah 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 there's one can that you need the can opener for
0: (laughs) it's a racket it's a conspiracy
2: they have to be drunk
1: right (laughs) it's big can big aluminum coming for us Your lockdown social posts were so topical, like you mentioned the Dan Andrews press conference, right? And that being the thing that inspired you. And that's quite a departure from being Jimmy Giggle and living in the land of Giggle and Hoot. I'm very familiar, Jimmy. I'm very familiar. Now that we're into a federal election campaign season, will you be drawing on the world of hashtag OzPol for any of the material in the next few weeks. Like, how political do you want to get?
2: Well, yeah, it's hard, isn't it? Because I don't enjoy consuming politics really (laughs) that much because, you know, I sort of like, what is happening? I don't know. It'd be a lot of work for me to keep up. But I think even sticking the bits of politics into a Meanwhile in Australia video or, you know, or something like that might be a bit of fun. But I don't think I'll be posting too much about it because I don't think I'm political enough for it, you know, or it's so much of an interest in it.
1: Fair, that's fair.
2: (laughs) There's some other great satiricists who do a great job of doing that. So, yeah.
0: (laughs) Well, you know, the lockdowns and what happened in Victoria kind of led you into this alternate career path through the videos that you've been posting online. So, if there was a sliding doors moment, you found yourself in a parallel universe where the pandemic didn't happen, what would your career actually look like now?
2: I'm sure I would have arrived at the moment of creating my own content but yeah a lot of it's been propelled by people needing some sort of a laugh being in lockdown and all the bizarre situations we've found ourselves in over the last two and a half years and like I said you know earlier it was parenting stuff which got me a bit of a boost online and And I probably would have persisted with that a little bit because that's sort of real life. And at the time, my audience online was parents, so it was sort of feeding into those moments of parenting, which are kind of bizarre and funny. So I think I would have definitely arrived at making my own content, whether it would have happened so quickly, getting to a point where it's almost a bit of a business now. I do some sponsored posts and people have come out of nowhere to appear on a TV show like Tiny Oz and here and there and everywhere and you can also monetize your channels if you them everywhere and it's going quite well. So it is like a career. It's hard to know, you know, like Crystal Ball, like what would have happened. I never dreamed of though having my own live comedy show so fast. You know, it was something I've always been interested in. And I've always jotted down comedy ideas and for stand up or even a, you know a show, not necessarily like you know sort of straight stand up. So I would have gotten there eventually, I hope. But this has sort of propelled it really fast, which I'm very grateful for. And my wife always says, if you laugh at him, he'll just encourage him to. Keep going, so <laughs> so you know she has this online audience of like people laughing at me. I'm like, well, I got to make another one now. Can I borrow another headband? Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so
1: those are her headbands. <laughs> when you talk about your comedy show, you look at the venues that you're playing. These are big venues. You're not working your way up through like the powder room of Melbourne Town Hall. You're like going to the big straight away. So congrats on that. That's been incredible. But let's talk about your past life, which I kind of think is still part of your present life, really, because you spent over a decade as Jimmy Giggle. That's huge on ABC Kids. When you become an entertainer for children on that level, you really become embedded into the lives of families in such a profound way. Was becoming Jimmy Giggle kind of like a chance detour in the path to being a performer or entertainer of some kind? Or was that an actual goal? Like, I want to be a kid's entertainer.
2: Oh, look, if I dial my mind back and the experience I had when getting into television, I don't know what it was about TV, but I just wanted to be on TV. It's not like I wanted to be an actor and I was going to do an acting course and I found the TV, the medium, is just where I wanted to end up. And, you know, a lot of people who start off as actors or whatever it might be, and you can then do commercials or stage or film or TV. But I wanted to do TV that was me being me not playing a role, like an acting role, I don't consider myself an actor at all. And I probably never will, you know, like someone came out and said, you know, like, oh, could you play this role on, I'd give it a go, but I find acting quite hard, you know, uh, it doesn't come naturally to me. So Jimmy Giggle was, you know, I went through this experience of just going to an audition and you had to send away a DVD back then, you know, like this was an open call of the ABC. They were looking for new talent. Giggle and Hoot was starting up at the same time. It piggybacked off this other talent search for another kids channel that, the ABC were launching at the time my DVD got passed on to the guys at Giggle and Hoot they auditioned me a couple of times and I got this role and it really was just a heightened version of myself. You know, they wanted a personality to fill that role of Jimmy Giggle, although it had a stage name and everything. It's really just me, you know, messing around and and having that kid's twist on it, obviously. But the amount of fun we had on the set, there's no kid's audience in there, so it got a bit rude at times, you know, between takes and stuff like that. It was such a fun environment to be in and the guys who played Hoot over the years and and Hootabell and all the other characters, we all had such a fun time. There's nothing like a puppet breaking its sort of character but still staying in character and saying some adult naughty jokes. You know, it's just too funny, you know? Like, so.
1: I want to see that show after the kids are in bed, they're in their pajamas, you know, they've gone to night-night land.
2: It's like Jimmy goes to sleep, who goes on the night watch? And then they appear straight back, you know, like he wakes up again and they just go out. <laughs> I think it was such a fun experience you know and I learnt so much about even how a set looks and you know I sort of use elements of that in my videos today you know like I'm not just shooting on my phone I could probably persist with that but I've got a camera I want to make it look nice I've got to try and put some effort into lighting and editing and all that sort of stuff so I learnt so much and yeah like it was a version of me that's what I was really thankful for if you had to come in and play a character which was defined on paper and you had to stick to that then I think I had the leeway to be me and a lot of the phrases and silly things that happen not on Giggle and Hoot. We're just Giggle and Hoot messing around on set, you know, like, which was really fun. We were allowed to do that.
0: With one major difference though, the voice, right? The Jimmy Giggle voice is quite indelible. How did you land on that voice and was it difficult committing to it? (laughs) For, for over a
2: decade? Well, it kind of grew. I was had no experience in a studio on TV at that time, and the director just kept saying to both Hoot and I in those early recordings of days on set was, you know, we want, to have this excitement it's like you're saying this is happening for the first time although that might seem obvious it was really helpful at the time and you know Hoot's voice was a kind of a falsetto voice anyway from the get-go they wanted it to be sort of you know a little bit Bart Simpson but a bit high you know kind of thing but when I get excited I think I get a bit more energetic and my voice goes up and then it's just evolved from there you know and it just kept going and going and I giggle on, Hoot was these small bites of just Complete bizarre fun, you know, and entertainment. I guess it's not like it was a learning program, or we're reading books, and it's got to go with the ebbs and flows of the story we're telling. It was just sort of like. And then on to the next show. So funnily enough, the number one question people would get was like, does it hurt your voice? And I'm like, well, it actually doesn't. They sent us to some vocal coaches to make sure it wasn't ruining any of our voices or whatever. And he actually said doing that Jimmy Giggle voice is actually the best for your voice because you're actually using your breath properly like a singer would (laughs) because you're sort of pushing it in a way that is healthy for your voice and not, you know, ruining your vocal cords. So I was like, oh, okay. If I go out to the pub and I'm talking in my normal voice over like ambient noise, I lose my voice like that. So the answer to that is just talk like Jimmy Giggle at a pub, which would probably annoy everyone, <laughs> but that's how I save my voice. <laughs>
1: So the Jimmy Giggle voice was good for your career and good for your health. That's uh, really amazing. (laughs) Just to bring it back to Tiny Oz, you know, watching that show, it kind of strikes me that this is a really happy medium where you are talking to an adult audience, but also a kid audience at the same time, because it's a super family friendly show. And that's kind of a very Jimmy Reese slash Jimmy Giggle place to dwell in. What's next for you, Jimmy Reese?
2: I love that element too just to reflect on what you just said online I know my content gets a bit kind of adult in a way but I try and keep it as clean as I can in terms of swearing and everything I always bleep them out if I or just not use it at all and and even my stage show is clean you know I've had some like teenagers come to the show if they're comfortable with watching my stuff online then they can come to the show you know what I mean I don't know if it's rare these days for a comedian doing a live show to not swear at all but I don't do that which is I guess honouring the audience who's grown up with Giggle and Hoot and they're now in their teens and following along online. But what's next? I don't know. I keep coming up with silly ideas for the content online. And, you know, it is a full-time job. I really enjoy coming down here to this studio space that I've got down here and trying to put together some bizarre piece of material like a comedy thing. Thinking of something different. Continuing on those series that I've sort of created through the pandemic, I guess. You know, Meanwhile in Australia and The Guy Who Decides this and that, coming up with new ideas and then I think it's a mixture of taking those to the stage and seeing what other opportunities arise but it's definitely sort of changed my whole perspective on the media and you know and being on TV which was my dream goal of forever. Look, I always dreamed of having my own show on TV. Well, I'm kind of doing that online now and I'm ticking all the boxes which I traditionally would have had for that would, could just be seen on TV. Well, I can do whatever I want now and I'm really enjoying that. So yeah, I'll just sort of see what comes but I'm just rolling with what's happening now and I really enjoy it. Thanks so much for joining us, Jimmy. Thank you for having me. What a wonderful chat.
0: The third instalment of Tiny Oz will be on ABC TV next Tuesday night or watch Tiny Oz anytime on iView. Jimmy Reese is touring his live show. Meanwhile, in Australia, across the country, we'll put a link to Jimmy Reese's social media and website in the Stop Everything show notes.
1: So, Dr... Benjamin Law. For some time Mm. now, in the background, you have been keeping, at our behest and yours, tabs on a pressing matter. It's a forensic investigation, it's a burgeoning and growing dossier, and it's simply begging to be released. I want to hear your report now, but please do advise if we need to give a content warning.
0: Yes, I have been doing a background investigation. Frankly, I don't know why it's not going to appear on Background Briefing or Four Corners. But, Beverly, I have been struggling to contain my huge, throbbing enthusiasm about this discussion for quite some time because, yes, semi-content warning here, we're going to be talking about penises. I mean, maybe we don't need to give a content warning for something that roughly half of the population has out there. But whatever, you're getting a content warning now and we're going to dive deep because I've noticed something within the realm of popular culture that has been showcasing this part of the anatomy more and more.
1: I am flabbergasted. This is simply engorging, I mean, engaging content. I know you're urgently and eagerly wanting to begin, so let's proceed, Benjamin.
0: Okay, it is time, so brace yourselves, people. We have got to discuss the relatively, I think, newfound abundance the second forest, if you will, of full frontal male nudity on TV because this is something that has been swelling oh in proportion God. over the past decade, Beverly, and I know that we're being facetious about it, but let me just do a roll call in terms of premier TV shows where we've had significant amounts of full frontal nudity. So when you think back to Game of Thrones and even before that, Oz, both HBO products. Then you go to Watchmen, The White Lotus. And just like that, Euphoria, Sex Life, Pam and Tommy, The Juice, Big Little Lies, Billions, Normal People, even movies like Ben Affleck in Gone Girl, very, very brief, and Bradley Cooper in Nightmare Alley. This is a big change that we did not have a generation ago.
1: That sounds like a waterfall of full frontal male nudity. That's quite a list. So, Why is this happening and why is it important with a capital I?
0: Well, let's delve into that. But before we do, I want to bring up the latest example where- Oh, there's more. Oh yeah, there's more. HBO Max's new drama, Minx, which is here on Stan in Australia. It follows the creation of a fictitious feminist magazine in the 1970s, which uses Playgirl style covers and centrefold models as a Trojan horse for more radical ideas so obviously the content fits the form fits the story here's what it sounds like
2: our goal is to level the playing field between the sexes she seems a little brainy yeah i think that's the point unless you want to be selling under the counter mags for the rest of your life
1: go ahead oh great
2: All those nights working away in your room, and for what? So you could be the porn queen of Pasadena?
1: Maybe it'll just be a single tiny weenus.
0: Hashtag single tiny weenus. So that's the trailer (laughs) for HBO Max's Minx, which is here on Stan. So given the show's premise, I don't think it should be a surprise that there is a lot of full frontal male nudity. Beverly, even that is an understatement, because 20 minutes into the first episode, there is a full... 60-plus-second montage of Schlong. Now, they're auditioning men for the magazine that the main character is starting, but you completely lose track of how many you see on screen. It's a forest. after the other. It's a phalanx.
1: Right, right.
0: (laughs) So this is very much a contrast to, say, the pre-internet era where you'd have to scan the TV guide for mentions of... M.A. 15 plus movies with adult themes, sex scenes and nudity, which is something that probably defined the puberty of my generation.
1: I mean, back in the day, it was all about SBS, late night movies, right? And now it's it's burst onto the panorama of television offerings.
0: (laughs) And you've identified the change here because SBS, of course, was showing international movies. A lot of European cinema has always been a bastion for equal opportunity nudity for as long as cinema has existed. But, you know, British and American cinema and TV has always had this kind of double standard, right? Lots of frank female nudity and maybe a male butt at best. So, a lot of people now are saying, is this starting here because it's a corrective to what has historically been erased?
1: Well, yes. Okay. Female breasts Mm -hmm. uh, do get a bit more airtime on TV, I would say more so in Australia than my experience of television in the United States where people are pretty prudish still as a whole. But I would say there isn't a lot of equivalent female mons, pubis, labia, vagina, clitoris action happening on regular TV, is there? Like it's not that Mm. kind of balancing out, is there? I mean, you could argue
0: that traditionally do we see a vulva on television and the answer would be no but I guess it's what constitutes nudity and for women it is breasts that are usually hidden from public view and for men it's usually their genitalia that's protruding (laughs) visible and also hidden from public view so I guess maybe that's the equivalent Mm -hmm. there the other theory that I think is quite compelling as well is that for younger audiences seeing a penis is actually not that shocking So in my generation, older geriatric millennials, we did not grow up seeing that much penis on TV. We didn't see that on screen and internet was very slow. So we weren't exposed to that much online pornography. Younger generations, for better or for worse, are exposed to a lot more pornography from a younger age. So penises are not as shocking to them. That's the other theory.
1: Okay. Thank you so much, Dr. Benjamin Law, for presenting your, your dossier of full frontal nudity to us in the Stop Everything podcast feed and on Radio National. I appreciate it that we can speak about this like regular adults and not make silly jokes and puns continuously through the conversation. It's a um, feminist project, Beverly. I'm an ally. Okay. I'm going to put that to the side just for a second, and I'm <laughs> going to proceed with my question, which is, okay, you've given me the list of all of the places where you're seeing full frontal male nudity, But I I still want to come back to the why. What is Mm -hmm. the impact on the art, right? Usually nudity needs to serve a purpose in the story. It shouldn't be gratuitous because we're Mm -hmm. not talking about porn. So what is your read of the cornucopia of penis that you are seeing and citing in television?
0: I would argue that maybe the reason is that for so long, parts of our bodies have been shielded without explanation on TV screens. You know, sex scenes that have been unrealistic where you see breasts but no male genitalia, where you see a man step artfully out of the shower, complete with a towel. There's like a matter-of-factness to the nudity that we're seeing on screens now that I think maybe in some cases that I cited are probably gratuitous, but in other cases it's simply a transition from a bedroom to a shower and it's just normalised. My actual theory in all of this is that countries like Australia, like the UK, like the US, probably have a more prudish attitude towards nudity and male nudity specifically. But when you go to places like Germany, Japan, Korea, there is a socially sanctioned space for public nudity that's matter of fact and non sexualized and as a result maybe our cultures are catching up. Are you talking about through
1: public baths in uh, public Korea and Public nude okay.
0: beaches, that are not sexual spaces but are just everyday spaces. And I think the equating of nudity with sexuality and having those two completely married to each other is very much a Western kind of mindset. And so, yes, you might argue, wow, we didn't used to see penises on screen. Everything's so sexy and racy now. But if you watch HBO's Watchmen, for instance, which I think is one of the best TV shows of the last decade, you'll notice that there is basically zero female nudity, there's a lot of frank matter-of-fact male nudity and it's not necessarily to do with sex. It's because those characters needed to be naked for whatever reason and it's not sexualized. it's just there and you move on with the story and I think those are examples where it's not gratuitous, it's not just there for shock value, it enhances the storytelling it's required and now filmmakers feel like they can do it.
1: Well, Benjamin, we certainly have covered the range in this episode of "Stop Everything." If you want to share your thoughts on anything from the mooted takeover of Twitter by Elon Musk to miniatures and our love of tiny things, or Benjamin Law's dossier on full frontal male nudity in television, you know where to hit us, arts on RN at abc.net.au. That's arts on RN at abc.net.au.
0: Share your thoughts about nudity, but do not share your nudity with us. We have not given <laughs> enthusiastic consent. No, please. You can also follow Stop Everything on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Thank you to our producer, Sarah Mashman, our sound engineers, Matthew Sigley and Brendan O'Neill. Stop Everything is produced on the lands of the Eora and Kula nations and on the land of the Muanina people from country around Nipaluna. Ben Law, see you next week. See you next week.